Section 30 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosita Johnson, and John Rock. Section 30. But to return to Confucius as the minister of crime, though eminently successful, the results obtained under his system were not quite such as his followers have represented them to have been. No doubt crime diminished under his rule, but it was by no means abolished. In fact, his biographers mentioned in case which must have been peculiarly shocking to him. A father brought an accusation against his son, in the expectation, probably, of gaining his suit with ease before a judge who lays such stress on the virtues of filial piety. But, to his surprise, and that of the onlookers, Confucius cast both father and son into prison, and to the remonstrances of the head of the G clan answered, Am I to punish for a breach of filial piety one who has never been taught to be filially minded? Is not he who neglects to teach his sons his duties, equally guilty with the son who fails in them? Crime is not inherent in human nature, and therefore the father in the family, and the government in the state, are responsible for the crimes committed against filial piety and the public laws. If a king is careless about publishing laws, and then preemptorily punishes in accordance with the strict letter of them, he acts the part of a swindler. If he collects the taxes, arbitrarily without giving warning. He is guilty of oppression, and if he puts the people to death without having instructed them, he commits a cruelty. On all these points, Confucius frequently insisted, and strove both by precept and example to impart the spirit they reflected on all around him. In the presence of his prince, we are told that his manner, though self-possessed, displayed respectful uneasiness. When he entered the palace, or when he passed the vacant throne, his countenance changed, his legs bent under him, and he spoke as though he had scarcely breath to utter a word. When it fell to his lot to carry the royal scepter, he stooped his body as though he were not able to bear his weight. If the prince came to visit him when he was ill, he had himself placed with his head to the east, and lay dressed in his court clothes, with his girdle across them. When the prince sent him a present of cooked meat, he carefully adjusted his mat and just tasted the dishes. If the meat were uncooked, he offered it to the spirits of his ancestors, and an animal which was thus sent him he kept alive. At the village festivals, he never preceded, but always followed after the elders. To all about him, he assumed an appearance of simplicity and sincerity. To the court officials of the lower grade, he spoke freely, and to superior officers, his manner was bland but precise. Even at the wild gatherings which accompanied the annual ceremonies of driving away pestilential influences, he paid honor to the original meaning of the rite by standing in court robes 
on the eastern steps of his house and received the riotous exorcists as though they were favored guests when sent for by the prince to assist in receiving a royal visitor his countenance appeared to change he inclined himself to the officers among whom he stood and when sent to meet the visitor at the gate he hastened forward with his arms spread out like the wings of a bird recognizing in the wind and the storm the voice of heaven he changed countenance at the sound of a sudden clap of thunder or a violent gust of wind the principles which underlie all these details relieve them from the sense of affected formality which they would otherwise suggest like the sages of old confucius had an overweening faith in the effects of example what do you say asked the chief of the jin clan on one occasion to killing the unprincipled for the good of the principled sir replied confucius in carrying on your government why should you employ capital punishment at all let your evinced desires be for what is good and the people be good and then quoting the words of king ching he added the relation between superiors and inferiors is like between the wind and the grass the grass must bend when the wind blows across it thus in every act of his life whether at home or abroad whether at table or in bed whether at study or in moments of relaxation he did all with the avowed object of being seen of men and of influencing them by his conduct and to a certain extent he gained his end he succeeded in demolishing a number of fortified cities which had formed the hotbeds of sedation and tumult, and thus added greatly to the power of the reigning duke he inspired the man with a spirit of loyalty and good faith and taught the women to be chaste and docile on the report of the tranquillity prevailing in lu strangers flocked into the state and thus was fulfilled the old criterion of good government which was afterward repeated by confucius the people were happy and strangers were attracted from afar but even confucius found it impossible to carry all his theories into practice and his experience as minister of crime taught him that something more than mere example was necessary to lead the people into the paths of verge before he had been many months in office he signed the death warrant of a well-known citizen named Shao for disturbing the public peace this departure from the principle he had so lately laid down astonished his followers and zi gung the simon peter as it has been called among his disciples took him to task for executing so notable a man but confucius held to it that the steps was necessary there are five great evils in the world said he a man with a rebellious heart who becomes dangerous a man who joins to vicious deeds a fierce temper a man whose words are knowingly false a man whose treasure in his memory nauseous deeds and disseminates them a man who follows evil and fertilizes it all these evil qualities were combined in Shao. His house was a rendezvous for the disaffected. His words were specious enough to dazzle anyone, and his opposition was violent enough to overthrow any independent man. But notwithstanding such departures from the lines he had laid down for himself, the people gloried in his rule and sang at their word songs in which he was described as their savior from oppression and wrong. Confucius was an enthusiast, and his wants of success in his attempt completely to reform the age in which he lived 
never seemed to suggest a doubt to, to his mind of the complete wisdom of his creed. According to his theory, his official administration should have effected the reform not only of his sovereign and the people, but of those of the neighboring states. But what was the practical result? The contentment which reigned among the people of Lu, instead of instigating the Duke of Qi to institute a similar system, only served to arouse his jealousy. With Confucius at the head of his government, said he, Lu will become supreme among the states, and Qi, which is nearest to it, will be swallowed up. Let us propitiate it by a surrender of territory. But a more provident statement suggested that they should first try to bring about the disgrace of the sage. With this object, he sent eighty beautiful girls, well skilled in the arts of music and dancing, and a hundred and twenty of the finest horses which could be procured, as a present to the Duke King. The result fully realized the anticipation of the minister. The girls were taken into the Duke's harem, the horses were removed to the ducal stables, and Confucius was left to meditate on the fall of men who preferred listening to the songs of the maiden of Zi to the wisdom of Yao and Shun. Day after day passed and the duke showed no signs of returning to his proper mind. The affairs of states were neglected and for three days the duke refused to receive his minister in audience. Master, said Zi Lu, it is time you went. But Confucius, who had more at stake than his disciple, was disinclined to give up the experiment on which his heart was set. Besides, the time was approaching when the great sacrifice to heaven as the solstice, about which he had had so many conversations with the duke, should be offered up, and he hoped that the recollection of his weighty words would recall the duke to a sense of his duties. But his gay rivals in the affections of the duke still held their sway, and the recurrence of the Greek festival failed to awaken his conscience even for the moment. Reluctantly, therefore, Confucius resigned his post and left the capital. But though thus disappointed of the hopes he entertained of the Duke of Lu, Confucius was by no means disposed to resign his role as the reformer of the age. If any one among the princes would employ me, said he, I would effect something considerable in the course of twelve months, and in three years the government would be perfected. But the tendencies of the times were unfavorable to the sage. The struggle for supremacy which had been going on for centuries between the princes of the various states was then at its height, and though there might be a question whether it would finally result in the victory of Qin or of Chu or of Qin, there could be no doubt that the scepter had already passed from the hands of the ruler of Chao. To men, therefore, who were fighting over the possessions of a state which had ceased to live, the idea of employing a minister whose principal object would have been to breathe life into the dead bones of Chao was ridiculous. This soon became apparent to his disciples, who became even more concerned than their master at his loss of office, and not taking so exalted a view as he did of what he considered to be a heaven-sent mission, were inclined to urge him to make concessions in harmony with the times. Your principles, said Zi Gong to him, are excellent, but 
they are unacceptable in the empire. Would it not be well, therefore, to bait them a little? A good husbandman, replied the sage, can sow, but he cannot secure a harvest. Another son may excel in handicraft, but he cannot provide a market for his goods. And in the same way, a superior man can cultivate his principles, but he cannot make them acceptable. But Confucius was at least determined that no efforts help in his part should be wanting to discover the opening for which he longed, and on leaving Lu, he betook himself to the state of Wai. On arriving at the capital, the reigning duke received him with distinction, but showed no desire to employ him, probably expecting, however, to gain some advantage from the counsels of the sage in the art of governing. He determined to attach him to his court by the grant of an annual stipend of 60,000 measures of grain, that having been the value of the post he had just resigned in Lu, Had the experiences of his public life come up to the sanguine hopes he had entertained at its beginning, Confucius would probably have declined his offer as he did that of the Duke of Qi some years before. But poverty unconsciously impelled him to act up to the advice of Qigong and to bait his principles of conduct somewhat. His stay, however, in Wei was of short duration. The officials at the court, jealous probably of the influence they feared he might gain over the duke, intrigued against him, and Confucius thought it best to bow before the coming storm. After living on the duke's hospitality for ten months, he left the capital, intending to visit the state of Qin. It chanced, however, that the way thither led him through the town of Quan, which he suffered much from the filibustering expeditions of a notorious disturber of the public peace named Yang Hu. To this man of ill fame, Confucius bore a striking resemblance, so much so that the townspeople, fancying that they now had their old enemy in their power, surrounded the house in which he lodged for five days intending to attack him. The situation was certainly disquieting, and the disciples were much alarmed. But Confucius's belief in the heaven-sent nature of his mission raised him above fear. After the death of King Wen, said he, was not the cause of truth lodged in me? If heaven had wished to let this sacred cause perish, I should not have been put into such a relation to it. Heaven will not let the cause of truth perish, and what therefore can the people of Quan do to me? Saying which he turned his lyre, and sang probably some of those songs from his recently compiled book of odes which breathed the wisdom of the ancient emperors. From some unexplained cause, but more probably from the people of Quan discovering the mistake than from any effect produced by Confucius' dictates. The attacking force suddenly withdrew, leaving the sage free to go wherever he listed. This misadventure was sufficient to deter him from wandering farther afield, and after a short stay at Po, he returned to Wei. Again the duke welcomed him to the capital, though it does not appear that he renewed his stipend, and even his consort Nanzi forgot for a while her intrigues and debaucheries at the news of his arrival. With a complimentary message, she begged an interview with the sage, 
which he at first refused. But on her urging her request, he was fain obliged to yield the point. On being introduced into her presence, he found her concealed behind a screen, in strict accordance with the prescribed antiquity. And after the usual formalities, they entered freely into conversation. Zilu was much disturbed at this want of discretion, as he considered it on the part of Confucius, and the vehemence of his master's answer showed that there was a doubt in his own mind whether he had not overstepped the limits of sage-like propriety. Wherein I have done improperly, said he, may heaven reject me, may heaven reject me. This incident did not, however, prevent him from maintaining friendly relations with the court, and it was not until the duke by public act showed his inability to understand the dignity of the role which Confucius desired to assume, that he lost all hope of finding employment in the state of his former patron. On this occasion, the duke drove through the streets of his capital seated in a carriage with Nanzi, and desired Confucius to follow in a carriage behind. As the procession passed through the marketplace, the people perceiving more clearly than the duke the incongruity of the proceeding, laughed and jeered at the idea of making Virge follow in the wake of a lust. This completed the shame which Confucius felt as being in so false a position. I have not seen one, said he, who loves Virge as he loves beauty, to stay any longer under the protection of her court, which could inflict such an indignity upon him, was more than he could do, and he therefore once again struck southward toward Chen. After his retirement from office, it is probable that Confucius devoted himself afresh to imparting to his followers those doctrines and opinions which we shall consider later on. Even on the road to Chen, we are told that he practiced ceremonies with his disciples beneath the shadow of a tree by the wayside in Sung. In the spirit of Laozi, Huang Tui, an officer in the neighborhood, was angered at his reported proud air and many desires, his insinuating habit and wild will, and attempted to prevent him entering the state. In this endeavor, however, he was unsuccessful, as were some more determined opponents, who two years later attacked him at Poole. When he was on his way to Wei, on this occasion he was seized, and though it is said that his followers struggled manfully with his captors, their efforts did not save him from having to give an oath that he would not continue his journey to Wei. But in spite of his oath, and in spite of the public slight which has previously been put upon him by the Duke of Wei, an irresistible attraction drew him toward that state, and he had no sooner escaped from the clutches of his captors than he continued his journey. This deliberate forfeiture of his word in one who had commanded them to hold faithfulness and sincerity as first principles, surprised his disciples, and Zigong, who was generally the spokesman on such occasions, asked him whether it was right to violate the oath he had taken. But Confucius, who had learned expediency in adversity, replied, It was an oath extracted by force. The spirits do not hear such. But to return to Confucius flying from his enemies in Song, finding his way bound by the action of Huang Tui, he proceeded westward and arrived at Jing. 
the capital of the state of the same name. Thither it would appear his disciples had preceded him, and he arrived unattended at the eastern gate of the city. But his appearance was so striking that his followers were soon made aware of his presence. There is a man, said a townsman to Zigong, standing at the east gate with a forehead like Yao, a neck like Gao Tao, his shoulders on a level with those of Ji Chen, but wanting below the waist three inches of the height of Yu, and altogether having the forsaken appearance of a stray dog. Recognizing his masters in this description, Zi Gong hastened to meet him, and repeated to him the words of his informant. Confucius was much amused and said, The personal appearance is a small matter, but to say I was like a stray dog. Capital, capital. The ruling powers in Jin, however, showed no disposition to employ even a man possessing such marked characteristics, and before long he removed to Chen, where he remained a year. From Chen, he once more turned his face towards Wai, and it was while he was on this journey that he was detained at Po, as mentioned above. Between Confucius and the Duke of Wai, there evidently existed a personal liking, if not friendship. The Duke was always glad to see him and ready to converse with him. But Confucius's unbounded admiration for those whose bones, as Lao Tzu said, were molded to dust, and especially for the founders of the Chao dynasty, made it impossible for the Duke to place him in any position of importance. At the same time, Confucius seems always to have hoped that he would be able to gain the duke over to his fields, and thus it came about that the sage was constantly attracted to the court of Duke Ling, and as often compelled to exile himself from it. On this particular occasion, as at all other times, the duke received him gladly, but their conversations, which had principally turned on the act of peaceful government, were now directed to warlike affairs. The duke was contemplating an attack on Po, the inhabitants of which, under the leadership of Huang Tui, who had arrested Confucius, had rebelled against him. At first, Confucius was quite disposed to support the duke in his intended hostilities, but a representation from the duke that the proper support of the other states would make the expedition one of considerable danger, converted Confucius to the opinion evidently entertained by the duke, that it would be best to leave Huang Tui in possession of his ill-gotten territory. Confucius's latest advice was then to this effect, and the duke acted upon it. The duke was now becoming an old man, and with advancing age came a disposition to leave the task of governing to others and to weary of Confucius' high-flown lectures. He ceased to use Confucius, as the Chinese historians say, and the state was therefore indolent, and ready to accept any offer which might come from any quarter. While in this humor, he received an invitation from Fu Xi, an officer of the state of Jin, who was holding the town of Zhong Mao against his chief, to visit him and he was inclined to go. It is impossible to study this portion of Confucius' career without feeling that a great change had come over his conduct. There was 
no longer that lofty love of truth and of virtue which had distinguished the commencement of his official life. Adversity, instead of stiffening his back and making him pliable, he who had formerly refused to receive money he had not earned, was now willing to take pay in return for no other services than the presentation of courtier-like advice location when Duke Lang decided to have his opinion in support of his own. And in defiance of his oft-repeated denunciation of rebels, he was now ready to go over to the court of a rebel chief, in the hope possibly of being able through his means to establish, as he said on another occasion, an eastern child. Again, Zilu interfered and expostulated with him on his inconsistency. Master, said he, I have heard you say that when a man is guilty of personal wrongdoing, a superior man will not associate with him. If you accept the invitation of this Fu Xi, who is in open rebellion against his chief, what will people say? But Confucius, with a dexterity which had now become common with him, replied, It is true I have said so, but is it not also true that if a thing be really hard, it may be ground without being made thin? And if it be really white, it may be steeped in a black fruit without becoming black? Am I a bitter good? Am I to be hung up out of the way of being eaten? But nevertheless, Zi Lu's remonstrances prevailed, and he did not go. His relations with the duke did not improve, and so dissatisfied was he with his patron that he retired from the court. As at this time Confucius was not in the receipt of any official income, it is probable that he again provided for his wants by imparting to his disciples some of the treasures out of the rich stores of learning which he had collected by means of diligent study and of a wild experience. Every word and action of Confucius were full of such meaning to his admiring followers that they have enabled us to trace him into the retirement of private life. In his dress, we are told, he was careful to wear only the correct colors. This usher, yellow, carnation, white and black, and he scrupulously avoided red as being the color usually affected by women and girls. At the table, he was moderate in his appetite, but particular as to the nature of his food and the manner in which it was set before him. Nothing would induce him to touch any meat that was high or rice that was musty, nor would he eat anything that was not properly cut up or accompanied with the proper sauce. He allowed himself only a certain quantity of meat and rice, and though no such limit was fixed to the amount of wine with which he accompanied his frugal fare, we are assured that he never allowed himself to be confused by it. When out driving, he never turned his head quite round, and in his actions as well as in his words, he avoided all appearance of haste. End of section 30